Pray with me, Father in heaven, our, our lives have been changed uh, by the King of Kings. and You've revealed his glory to us. God, we know that you've revealed your glory to us in all kinds of ways through creation, but most especially through the Lord Jesus Christ. And even as he's expressed and revealed to us by your most holy word. And so I pray that now, Holy Spirit, you would come in such a way that your word would be empowered to transform our lives. So I pray that as this word is read to us and this word is expounded to us, that our lives would be transformed, that we would be the very ones who would live, that we might bring glory to God. This I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Well, good morning to you. It's great to be back uh, for the annual visit here at uh, Grace Church and for the Navigator Conference over the weekend. Uh, someone was saying, I think it was uh, Matt, uh, the, our campus director for the Navigators, that this is the 10th uh, year that uh, we have been here, and we're beginning to feel at home. Uh, in fact, we've felt at home for a long time. And I was mentioning to the group on Friday night that... Uh, Actually, my association with Grace Church goes farther back than 10 years. It goes back into the 90s someplace where uh, I came uh, to speak at a men's retreat out in a very rustic area that I jokingly refer to as Snorville uh, because apparently uh, there was quite a bit of snoring going on at that men's retreat. Uh, So it's great to be here, and thank you so much, Bill, for your graciousness I listen to Bill's sermons, every, every sermon that you listen to. I also get to listen to them through the CDs that are mailed to me. And uh, as I listen to them, I am always marvel that Bill allows anyone else to come into his pulpit because uh, God has really anointed him and uses him. And I benefit very much. Thank you very much for your teaching of the word. Would you turn with me in your Bibles to Luke chapter 7? And I must have given the wrong uh, beginning verse um, to the church secretary. I think I gave it through Matt. But in any event, uh, yes, we are going to begin with uh, verse 36. I had verse 37. But we're going to begin with verse 36 of Luke chapter 7. I'm going to read the entire passage to you. And then go go back and um, clarify. Boy, an apparent um, misunderstanding in the text, and then we'll proceed to see what Jesus teaches us through this text of Scripture. One of the Pharisees asked him to eat with him, and he went into the Pharisee's house and took his place at the table. And behold, a woman of the city who was a sinner, when she learned that he was reclining at table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment, And standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and wiped them with the hair of her head and kissed his feet and anointed them with the ointment. Now when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, If this man were a prophet, 
he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him, for she is a sinner. And Jesus answering said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he answered, Say it, teacher. <clears throat> a certain moneylender who had two debtors, one owed 500 denarii and the other 50. When they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now which of them will love him more? Simon answered, The one, I suppose, for whom he canceled the larger debt. And he said to him, You have judged rightly. Then turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, Do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But he who is forgiven little loves little. And he said to her, Your sins are forgiven. Then those who were at table with him began to say among themselves, Who is this who even forgives sin? And he said to the woman, Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. This, of course, is a, a uh, narrative in the actual events in the life of Jesus. It's not a parable, although there is a small parable in the midst of it, but this is an actual historical event in his life, and in my opinion, it is one of the most beautiful and powerful stories in the Bible because it teaches us the power of forgiveness. It teaches us the power of God's forgiveness to change lives and to motivate us to worship him. But before we get into the message of the story, I want to clarify something that can be misunderstood from verses 47 and 48. Let me just read those to you once again. Jesus said, Therefore I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But he who is forgiven little loves little, and he said to her, Your sins are forgiven. These verses seem to say that the woman's uh, sins were forgiven at that particular time and that they were forgiven because she loved much. Her sins, which are many, are forgiven for she loved much. But uh, we know that uh, this is not true because uh, to say this would fly in the face of everything that the scriptures teach us because the idea that uh, we are forgiven because of our love would say that we earn our forgiveness whereby the whole teaching of the Bible and particularly of the New Testament is that forgiveness is based, of course, upon or comes to us from God's grace through the atoning sacrifice of Jesus Christ on the cross. We're not forgiven because we love, but rather we love because we're forgiven. In fact, Jesus says, but he who is forgiven little loves little, and the opposite, of course, is true. He who is forgiven much loves much, and this is basically the teaching of the parable. So um, and then the, the parable, um, sorry, the teaching of the narrative then the parable of the moneylender in verses 41 to 43 makes it clear that love is a result of forgiveness, not the means of earning it. The commentators that I have looked at, the commentators on the book of Luke, all agree that this is not the first encounter of this woman with the Lord Jesus. 
But apparently sometime previously, probably very recently before this story, she had encountered Jesus and had been forgiven of her sins. Now, no place in any of the Gospels do we read of this encounter. But with this hopeful clarification, let's proceed now with the details of the story and see what it teaches us about the power of forgiveness. First of all, Jesus is invited to eat at the house of a Pharisee, a man by the name of Simon. As you read through the four Gospels, you notice that the Pharisees were noted for their self-righteousness and were noted for the fact that they, so to speak, gathered their religious robes around them and wanted to have nothing to do with the ordinary people whom they called sinners. Now, uh, Jesus is invited to eat at this man's house, Uh, probably not out of graciousness, probably not out of gratitude, but as the narrative would indicate, he really invites Jesus, so to speak, to check him out, to see what this, this teacher is all about. And so it was not exactly a friendly environment, uh, as we will find as we go through the text. But uh, there was sort of an, an aloof environment. And so, but he, nevertheless, he invites Jesus. And this woman, who was a sinner, comes into the house to anoint Jesus. Now, Luke does not tell us the nature of her sin. I think that sometimes we just jump to the conclusion that she was a prostitute, and she well may have been a prostitute, but the text does not tell us that. But it does tell us that she was a well-known sinner. For example, uh, in verse 39, uh, Simon the Pharisee says, if this man had known uh, who and what sort of woman it is who is touching him, for she is a sinner. So she had a bad reputation. Whatever the nature of this reputation was, Luke does not tell us, but nevertheless, it was a bad reputation. We, we might be fair in saying she was a notorious sinner, and yet she comes into his house. Now, in the culture of that day, it was not unusual for uninvited guests to come in and to stand around the, the eating room and uh, to listen in on the conversation. And I'm sure that all of you or most of you are aware that the people in those days did not sit at a table with chairs with their feet under the table as we do today, but rather the, the table was low, near to the floor, and they, they actually lay down, so to speak. They leaned on their left elbow and used the right hand to dip into the food, but their feet were out behind them. That's why um, uh, in verse 37... Uh, that it says that Jesus was reclining at table in the Pharisee's house. So we need to, as we picture this event, we need to see the people around the table with their feet sticking away from the table so that this woman does have access, easy access, to the feet of Jesus. It's necessary that we see that picture. Now, as I mentioned, in the culture of that day, it was not unusual for uninvited guests to come in and stand around the perimeter of the room, and listen in on the conversation. But what is striking about this story, what is very unusual about this story, is that this woman who was a known sinner in the community would have the gumption, so to speak, and the courage and the brazenness, really, to come into the house of this super self-righteous religious person named Simon, the Pharisee. 
I mean, this is, you might say, uh, the, the least to the greatest as far as the religion of the people were concerned. She was a notorious sinner. He was a very self-righteous Pharisee, and uh, yet she has the courage to come into his house, and she does this because she is on a mission. She has come to anoint the feet of Jesus. Having been forgiven of her sin, she comes to express her love and her gratitude to Jesus. And so she comes uh, with this anointing oil, and she is prepared to kneel down and to anoint his feet. But as she comes and as she stands at his feet, all of a sudden she bursts into tears. Now, in order for us to, to capture again what is happening, these are not just a few tears trickling down her cheeks. This is an effusion of tears. She, she bursts into tears, and as, she, as she's kneeling down, her tears wet the feet of Jesus so that it is necessary before she can anoint his feet that she, first of all, wipe them off. Not having a towel with which to do that, she does another unthinkable thing. She does something which was considered a shameful thing in the uh, culture of that day, and that is that she loosens her hair, which is tied up in some kind of a, a bun behind her. She loosens her, her long tresses, and kneeling down, she uses those to dry the feet of Jesus. And so we see, first of all, she dares to invade, as it were, this house of this super self-righteous Pharisee. And then she does this shameful act of loosening her hair in public, all in the interest of anointing the feet of Jesus. So she dries his feet with her hair, then she kisses them, and then she pours out this expensive ointment on his feet. Simon the Pharisee is observing all of this, and instead of marveling at her worship of Jesus, he is sitting there in his self-righteousness, and he's saying, now, if this man were a prophet. In fact, here, let me just read the text again. Uh, verse 39, when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him, for she's a sinner. I mean, after all, you know, rabbis do not allow sinners to touch them. And so he doubts that Jesus is a prophet because Jesus does not have the, the realization that this woman is a sinner. Now, Jesus can read his thoughts. Whether or not he read his thoughts as a result of his divine nature or whether or not sometimes, you know, when we're in the presence of somebody else and we can, as it were, read what they're thinking by the expression on their face or something, we don't know. But in any event, Jesus could clearly read his thoughts. And so he says to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he answers, say it, teacher. It's kind of a, you know, brushing, you know, just go ahead, say it. Uh, there still is no respect. There's no reverence for him. He's still in the process of checking out this man. And so he says to him, say it, teacher. And Jesus said, a certain moneylender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. So here are two debtors. One owes 10 times the amount of debt that the other one owes. And uh, when they could not pay, neither one of them could pay, he canceled the debt of both. 
Now which of them will love him more? Simon answered, The one, I suppose, for whom he canceled the larger debt. Simon is still very cautious. He doesn't want to get trapped by the question that Jesus is asking. So he, 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 he doesn't say, Lord, I, I get your picture. I see what you're getting at. But he says, I, I suppose that the one uh, who is uh, forgiven the greater debt. And so Jesus says to him, you have judged rightly. And then he turns to the woman. He points to the woman. But he says to Simon, do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet which was the cultural thing to do because they walked along with their sandals and their feet got dusty and dirty. And so it was, it was the custom when guests came in to provide someone to wash their feet. In fact, this was the role of the least of the servants. That's why it's so remarkable in John 13 that Jesus took the role of the servant and washed the feet of the disciples. But as Jesus comes in, Simon does not assign the servant to wash his feet. Uh, he says, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss from the time I came in. She has not ceased to kiss me. We would say today, you didn't even shake my hand. But in, in the culture of that day, it was a kiss. Now, in, in recent years, we've sort of loosened up in our staidness and we give people hugs uh, we have yet to get to the place where we are giving them a kiss on the cheek. But uh, nevertheless, the, the kiss on the cheek was the standard greeting of that day. So Simon does not assign the servant to wash his feet, does not give him the customary kiss of greeting, and does not pour oil, olive oil, on his head, which, was, again, was a sign of respect, and we're glad you're here, kind of a, of a uh, treatment. So Simon did not do anything. Simon invites Jesus to come and have dinner at his house, but he does not treat him as a guest. And so we see here that's inferred in this that the whole attitude of Simon is not to receive this rabbi in a sense of learning from him or showing him respect, but he's actually invited him to check him out. It really is sort of a semi-hostile environment that Jesus is in, in the house of Simon the Pharisee. And so Jesus then proceeds, therefore I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven. So <clears throat> Jesus compares here Simon's total lack of the usual courtesies with the woman's act of love and gratitude. Now the extent of her love is the proof of the fact that her sins, which Jesus says were, were many, he says, therefore I tell you, verse 47, her sins, which are many, are forgiven. Jesus was very much aware of her notoriety. Jesus was very much aware of the fact that she was quite a sinner because he says her sins, which are many, are forgiven. But then he goes ahead to say that the, her doing this act of love and worship by pouring the ointment on his feet was an expression of her love and gratitude for the fact that she had been forgiven. And then Jesus makes the application, he who is forgiven little loves little. And the converse, of course, is also true. He who is forgiven much loves much. 
And this is really the point of the whole story. He who has been forgiven little loves little. He who has been forgiven much loves much. And here we see the power of forgiveness in producing this sacrificial love on the part of this woman, demonstrated by her courage, you might say, to enter the house of of Simon the Pharisee, even though she is a notorious sinner, and to uh, anoint his feet to do the shameless act of, of, or the shameful act of loosening her hair to, to wipe his feet. Everything that she does is an indication of her deep gratitude and consequent love for the Savior. And so we can see in the experience of this woman three stages that she goes through. And these three stages are important for us to learn the teaching of this story. First of all, she has become convicted of her sins, which were many. Apparently, in this encounter with the Savior, just in the encountering of, uh, with him, she had come to the realization of her sin. We do not know the nature of this encounter. We do not know how it happened. It could have been an experience similar to that of the of Samaritan woman, uh, who is the story of who is told for us in John chapter 4. And I'm sure that all of you are familiar with that story. But it could have been something uh, like that, that Jesus encounters her, and he doesn't just say your sins are forgiven, but he leads her along the path, first of all, of realization of the depths of her sin, and then having been convicted of her sin, she receives from him forgiveness. In this prior encounter, she hears the words of Jesus, your sins are forgiven. I'm reminded of uh, the experience of Isaiah in the sixth chapter of Isaiah when he saw in this vision the infinite majestic holiness of God and how he was completely devastated. And as a result of seeing the holiness of God, he, he said, woe is me. For I'm undone, for I'm a man of unclean lips, for I I live in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Isaiah was completely devastated. He He was convicted of his sinfulness, not particular sins, though that might have been true, but of his sinfulness. And this was undoubtedly true of this woman. She saw herself as spiritually dirty, if you please. And then Isaiah heard the the words of that seraphim that God had sent to him, saying to him, your guilt is taken away and your sins are atoned for. Isaiah heard the gospel in those words. Isaiah heard the words of forgiveness. And whatever words Jesus might have used, this woman, having been deeply convicted of her sin, heard the gospel from the lips of Jesus. She heard her sins were forgiven. And so she experienced Forgiveness. This is the second stage. First of all was the conviction of her sin. Second of all was the realization of her forgiveness. And then she uh, comes to express her gratitude. Not because, not in order to earn her forgiveness, but because she has been forgiven. Now this seems contradictory, contradicted by the words of verse 48, where he says to her at that time, your sins are forgiven. And the question would naturally arise if uh, she had been forgiven prior to that, prior to this incident, then why does Jesus say to her again, your sins are forgiven? 
That was not for her benefit, but for the benefit of the audience. It's like somebody who, some person who has been uh, publicly uh, charged with a serious crime, and it gets into all the newspapers, all the media, and everybody assumes that this person is guilty. And then as the case is investigated, perhaps, you know, in, in a case of a, of a sexual sin or something like that, and then there's a D, DNA test, it proves that this person is guilty, I'm sorry, this person is innocent, then there needs to be a public declaration that the person is indeed innocent. In other words, the, the broadcasting of his innocence needs to be equivalent to the broadcasting of his presumed guilt earlier. You, you follow me on that principle. And this is what Jesus is doing when he says to her in the presence of these Pharisees, Though Simon is listed as a Pharisee, we can assume that his other guests were fellow Pharisees, all called together to check out this teacher, this rabbi called Jesus. It was important to testify to them that this woman's sin had been forgiven. And that's why he says to her in public in verse 48, your sins are forgiven. So this is what Jesus did. He publicly announced to the to the audience, her sins have been forgiven. And so she, again, experiences not only of the personal words of Jesus in this prior encounter, but she experiences being forgiven in public. Think what this must have meant to her. Think again of the illustration I've given of somebody who is convicted of a, I mean, not convicted, but is charged with a serious crime and everyone assumes that the person is guilty. You know, we legally, we always say that you're innocent until proven guilty. But with the media representation these days, usually uh, you're assumed guilty unless you're proven innocent. And so uh, it was important for this woman, for her own self-esteem, so to speak, to be able to hold her head high in the community that she be uh, publicly acknowledged as having been forgiven. So think what this would have meant to her. Remember, she is a well-known sinner. And not only has she privately heard the gospel and been assured that her sins are forgiven, but now in the presence of these super self-righteous religious Pharisees, she again hears the words, your sins are forgiven. Think what this must have meant to this woman. And so we see these three steps, conviction of sin, forgiveness of sin, and expression of love and gratitude. A great Dutch theologian by the name of G.C. Burkauer once said, the essence of Christian theology is grace, and the essence of Christian ethics is gratitude. When you understand grace, you will not say, as some people charged Paul with saying, you know, it's all of grace, so let us sin as we please. But rather, when we really understand the gospel, when we experience in the very core of our being forgiveness of our sin, then the natural reaction, not natural in the sense of we're born with it, but the, the reaction that the spirit produces, the natural spirit-produced reaction is one of gratitude and of love and of dedication 
in this case represented by this woman pouring this expensive ointment on the feet of Jesus. Contrast Simon the Pharisee and the woman. He loved little, or actually he didn't love at all. Why? Because he never realized the extent of his sin. In Luke 18, Jesus tells the story of the Pharisee and the tax collector praying in the temple. And if we assume that that Pharisee's blatant self-righteousness reflected the typical attitude of all of the Pharisees, then we can safely assume that Simon, this particular Pharisee, was just as self-righteous as the man praying in the temple as recorded in Luke 18. Simon was not aware of his sin. Therefore, he could not experience the joy of forgiveness. Therefore, he had no love for the Savior. But the woman, like the tax collector in the temple, was deeply aware of her sin. She did experience the joy of forgiveness, and therefore she loved much. A great Dutch commentator by the name of Norval Geldinghaus, and that's the English pronunciation. Um, I lived in Holland for three years, and it's Geldinghaus. Um, but he, he wrote uh, this word, these words on this passage. He said, All real love to Christ must be preceded by a deep consciousness of our own sinfulness and unfitness for acceptance before a holy God. Now, let me read that again. All real love for Christ must be preceded by a deep consciousness of our own sinfulness and unfitness for acceptance before a holy God. You cannot love God unless you realize how sinful you are. And then he proceeds, and by the assurance that for Jesus' sake, our sins, however great they may be, are forgiven. So if you and I are going to love much, we have to first of all be aware of the depths of our sin and then aware of the extent of God's gracious forgiveness through the shed blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. And Heldon House proceeds, love of God that is not founded upon these two foundations, that is, conviction of our sin and experience of forgiveness, love that is not founded upon these two foundations cannot be genuine nor permanent. What he is saying here is, if you have not experienced conviction of your sin and the forgiveness from uh, through the Lord Jesus, you cannot love God. He says, these are the two foundation stones upon which the love of God must be built and upon which it remains. And so the question for you and me today is this. How much do I love God? Do I love him little or do I love him much? Now, interestingly, this, uh, the answer to that question, do I love him little or do I love him much, is based upon not our sinfulness, but our estimate, our own personal estimate of how sinful we are. Simon was just as great a sinner as the sinful woman. His sin was not notorious. Those of you who were here over the weekend heard me speak of respectable sins, you know, like gossip and pride and jealousy and uh, these kinds of things. And Simon was guilty of all of these. And these sins are reprehensible. I pointed out in one of the sessions yesterday that when Paul speaks of the works of the flesh in Galatians 5, 19 to 21, that he intermingles 
these so-called respectable sins with the gross scandalous sins. They're all the same. Sin is sin. Now, obviously, some sin is more serious. It's more serious to murder than it is to hate. It's more serious to to, uh, commit adultery than it is to have a lustful thought. I'm not suggesting, but all sin is sin. The question is, what is our estimate of our own sinfulness? Because to the degree that we see ourselves to be sinful, to that degree we will appreciate the gospel, we will embrace the gospel, and to that extent we will return our worship and our gratitude and our love to God. Now this is difficult for many of us because uh, many of you, uh, like I, have come from a Christian home. You've never committed any of the big sins, and perhaps you trusted Christ as a child, and so you don't have this dramatic conversion story. You know, I was a great big sinner, and then I met Christ, and now here's my life afterward. You don't, you don't have that kind of a testimony. But consider the testimony of the Apostle Paul in Philippians 3, the first nine verses there. He doesn't talk about how big a sinner he was. He talks about how righteous he was. And in the standard of external righteousness of that day. I mean, he had a spiritual resume that wouldn't quit. And yet, he says, there came a day when I just threw it all overboard. When I renounced all of my righteous pedigree and my righteous resume in order that I might be found in Christ. Not having a righteousness of my own, which is of the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God and is by faith. And I want to say to you today, it doesn't matter whether your testimony is like the Apostle Paul's, just all goodness, or whether you have been a notorious sinner like the woman in our story here in Luke 7. It doesn't matter. Our love to Christ is dependent upon our, the, our estimate of, of our forgiveness, and that in turn is based upon our estimate or our realization of our sinfulness. And to the degree that we realize how sinful we really are, and to the degree that we realize how much we have been forgiven, to that degree we will love much. Now this sinful woman expressed her love and her gratitude by coming in in this difficult situation, in this hostile environment, and doing this shameful act of drying his feet and then anointing his feet with this expensive ointment. God is not asking us today, and it's not possible, obviously, for us to anoint the feet of Jesus with some expensive perfume. But he is asking us to offer our bodies as a living sacrifice. But what does he appeal to? Through Paul. He says, I appeal to you on the basis of God's mercy to present your body as a living sacrifice. Or Paul says again in in 2 Corinthians uh, chapter 5, verses 14 and 15, he says, For the love of Christ, that's Christ's love, for Christ's love controls us or compels us. Compels us to do what? Compels us to live not for ourselves, but for Him. That's the anointing, so to speak, that God wants of us today. Not with literal perfume, but with our lives. 
with a commitment to live not for ourselves, but for him. Where does this start? Well, it starts all the way back in the realization of how sinful we are. And then it proceeds to the realization of how much we've been forgiven. And then it expresses itself in presenting our bodies as a living sacrifice, of presenting ourselves to live not for ourselves, but for him. Now, this story is given as a kind of a one-time event. But for you and me, this should be a continual story. That is, we should be growing in the awareness of how sinful we really are. And it's, it's true, it's characteristic of a growing Christian that the more you grow, the more you see of these subtle, respectable sins in your life, and the more you realize how sinful you really are. But it's not enough to grow in the realization of your sinfulness. You must also, along with that, grow in your understanding and appreciation of the gospel. I've said from time to time, it's become kind of a a statement with me in the last couple of years, that you do not really appreciate the gospel until you become desperate for the gospel. You do not really appreciate the gospel until you become desperate for the gospel. And so I would ask you today, if you put Simon the Pharisee over here and the sinful woman, just polar opposites, and then there's a continuum over between them, which one are you more likely to identify with? Answer that question honestly. Are you a self-righteous Pharisee? Quite comfortable with your stage of spirituality? Or are you more like the sinful woman? Not in the notoriety of her sin, not in the depths of her infamous uh, flagrant sin, but in the real, continuing realization of how sinful you really are. Jesus said, I came not to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. The gospel is only for sinners. But the gospel is for sinners. That's the good news. We should never uh, grow in our realization of our sinfulness without at the same time growing in our realization of the power of the gospel and the power of forgiveness to change our lives and to produce worship and sacrifice and service for the master. Let's pray. Our Father, we come to you today and we just ask that you would impress upon our minds the story. May we see in this beautiful story, this beautiful true story of an actual event that occurred in the life of Jesus and this woman, the power of your forgiveness of our sin. And may we be so gripped by the extent of your forgiveness of us that we willingly and joyfully present ourselves to you as living sacrifices. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you, Jerry. Let me ask you please to stand for the benediction. Uh, The response uh, to our benediction this morning is Jesus is Lord. Hallelujah. Uh, Please receive this as God's benediction.
Now to him who is able to keep you from falling and to present you blameless before his glorious presence and that with great joy. To only wise God and Savior Jesus Christ whom be glory, dominion, majesty and power both now and forevermore. And all God's people said, Jesus is Lord. Hallelujah.